Hi there, Will here. One of my very favorite books about movies is called Sleazoid Express, A Mind-Twisting Tour Through the Grindhouse Cinema of Times Square by Bill Landis and Michelle Clifford. Published in 2002, it took a retrospective look at the Grindhouse movie theaters on New York's 42nd Street during the 70s and 80s. Theaters that would play Mondo movies, sexploitation, Italian cannibal films, Kung Fu, the films of Andy Milligan and Herschel Gordon Lewis, and sundry other disreputable works. I discovered the book when I was 16, and in addition to helping introduce me and many others to all kinds of strange and exotic movies, it helped canonize the grindhouse milieu in the popular consciousness. Each chapter was structured as a tour of a different, long-closed 42nd Street movie theater, with locations like the Rialto, the Apollo, the New Amsterdam, and the Globe described in vivid detail. I'd like to read you a bit of the book's final chapter, Lost at the Roxy, which describes the most dangerous of the theaters covered in the book. The Roxy Theater had several incarnations, but all of them were pretty foul. Located on the south side of the street next to the Cine Twins, it was originally one of the Deuce's grungiest, most pungent-smelling, and most dangerous adult houses. Sharing management with the landmark Scumatorium show world, the Roxy spent the 1970s through the mid-1980s showing third-run hardcore porn, hosting live sex shows, and serving as an open stomping ground for quickie prostitution. It attracted the worst, most desperate people on the deuce. You didn't even stand near the theater unless you wanted a drug addict streetwalker propositioning you as her pimp-slash-live-show partner hung over your shoulder. In the early to mid-1980s, rare deuce favorites that had been gone for years were suddenly accessible again because of video, and distributors who hadn't shown some movies in years suddenly saw dollar signs. In 1985, the Roxy was renovated and converted into a multi-level fourplex that showed exploitation double bills on video, becoming a sort of living sleazoid museum. You could catch every sort of film from every year, including many rough girl gems from the 1970s like Fugitive Girls and the Arthur Marks classics Roommates and Centerfold Girls. There were bookings so dissimilar only the deuce could conceive them, like Superman and Superfly. Unfortunately, despite the renovation, the Roxy remained devoid of fresh air and retained both its B.O. aroma and its super sleazy vibe. Sometimes you'd see the Roxy cashiers, former live show workers with names like Duran, run into a broom closet with a crack pipe during their breaks. To walk into one of the Roxy's mini-theaters meant walking into any number of crazy scenes or insane outbursts. You'd see Laura Gemser getting violated by her real-life husband, Gabrielle Tinti, in Smooth Silk and Raw Velvet after she participates in a sex magic ceremony at the Sphinx. The movie was a legendary Euroslees classic that you'd have been lucky to catch when it was first released in 1977. Or maybe you'd see Victor Buono screaming at you while rearranging an Alice in Wonderland-style tea party in the horror oddity Moonchild. You never knew what movie you were walking into. You'd have to stand there for a few minutes to figure it out. If you stood too long, though, people would start to surround you, thinking you were looking for a possible sex partner, or were just stupid and asking to be robbed. So it was wise to take one of the ass-numbing plastic seats if you weren't sure, then figure it out. But before you sat down, you'd have to flick a lighter at the seat to make sure there was no weird, wet mess on it. Once seated, 
You could easily imagine Victor marching off the screen to tell you to move your chair as the rest of the cast shouted at you that they hated it there and wanted out of Times Square. People smoked everything openly in the audience, from nauseating cools to cheap psychotic crack. Those scary angel dust smokers puffing along with the weed heads sprinkled liberally throughout the crowd. Whether it was summer or winter, the air conditioning was always blasting, which turned the experience of watching a double feature into a prolonged icebox torture session, and was downright painful if you came in out of the rain. The video projected image was adequate, but sometimes the speakers would be turned up so loud that the walls would be shaking and the thin plastic seats vibrating. You could hear the screaming from the film next door bleed through the walls. These pressure points of discomfort seemed to be the theater's only method of discouraging sleepers and crashers, the kinds of guys who would normally inhabit all-night porno houses like 8th Avenue's Venus Theater or the Harlem Theater on the north end of the Deuce. These theaters were starting to close, though, and the sleepers needed new crash pads. You might flee again to another mini whose AC wasn't working at all and whose stale atmosphere reaped of cools, cheap cologne, and B.O., but changing mini-theaters in the Roxy was a challenge. The theater had an intricate maze layout, with stairwells that went up a flight, then down a flight, leading to one of the four mini-theaters, or sometimes to a door you'd open only to find yourself behind a screen. The hallways were tiny and claustrophobic, and you had to keep a Pac-Man pace in the stairwell. If you allowed yourself to be dominated into even noticing people, it was their cue to rape and take. The Roxy bathrooms were a real Port Authority affair to be avoided at all costs. The men's room stank of urine and had filthy newspapers stuck all over the floor, and you never knew if someone might be passed out or doing drugs in the stall. The ladies' room had three stalls, each filthier than the next. Bloody tampons thrown in menstrual rages were stuck to the ceiling, and walls next to pathetic love graffiti from delusional crackhead streetwalkers. The place reeked of weak-old, dead carp. The Roxy was a fitting home for the inner-city movies that were time-tested deuce classics. With character archetypes plucked right from 42nd Street, these movies harped on socially inappropriate tenderloin storylines involving prostitution, live sex show work, drug dealing, pimping, illegal fighting, and gambling. They featured the kind of blue humor that you employ when vice is what you live, see, and breathe every waking hour. The films were as inflexible and distinct as the troublemakers sitting in the audience. By the time these words were published in 2002, the combined forces of AIDS, the crack epidemic, companies like Disney, and politicians like Rudy Giuliani had ended that version of 42nd Street, giving way to its present-day incarnation as a tourist mecca. This was a handsome book published by Simon & Schuster, but unlike so many 21st-century homages to grindhouse culture, it was actually birthed in the world that it describes— Sleazoid Express began life as a zine that ran from 1980 to 1985. Bill Landis, its editor and main writer, was a 20-something habitué of Times Square, who wrote about the neighborhood's cultural life back when no mainstream critic would. His magazine developed an underground reputation for the quality of its writing, which combined Landis's astute critical commentary with a you-are-there journalism style that recalled Hunter S. Thompson or Gay Talese. Soon, its masthead would include Jimmy McDonough, later the acclaimed writer of definitive biographies of Russ Meyer, Neil Young, and Andy Milligan. Though a crudely Xeroxed underground publication, Sleazoid Express counted Larry McMurtry, Roger Ebert, and John Waters among its subscribers. At the same time Landis was a visible figure in Manhattan's underground art world, he was also familiar to Times Square audiences as a porn star under the name Bobby Spector. A victim of childhood sexual abuse, 
he channeled the pain into this sideline career throughout the 80s. The lifestyle of a porn star proved corrosive to him, sending him deeper and deeper into drug addiction. But then he resurfaced in the 90s, sober, married to a writer named Michelle Clifford, scoring bylines in The Village Voice and Rolling Stone, and authoring two important books for major publishers. The other was a biography of Kenneth Anger. This period of hard-won success didn't last. In the 2000s, he relapsed and lost everything. In 2008, he finally lost his life, dying of a heart attack two days before Christmas at the age of 49. He left a trail of broken friendships in his wake, and the obituaries by his former friends doubled as roasts. There are a lot of mysterious blanks in that biography, and I was thrilled to see at least some of them filled by Landis, The Story of a Real Man on 42nd Street, a new biography by Preston Fossil. The book, available on Amazon, is the first serious attempt to document this elusive writer's life. Because I'm always looking for opportunities to talk about Bill Landis, I got in touch with Preston. He's a writer whose work has appeared in Fangoria, Rue Morgue, Daily Grindhouse, and Dread Central, among others. He's also the author of a biography on the horror actress Vanessa Howard in a novel called Our Lady of the Inferno. I encourage everyone to pick up a copy of Landis, and also make sure that you get a copy of the Sleazoid Express book. It's out of print and can be hard to come by, but it's worth whatever you have to pay. And also, you can find a scan of it on archive.org, although you didn't hear that from me. Anyway, here's my conversation with Preston Fossil. Thanks so much for writing this book. It's one of those books that really felt like it was written specifically for me. (laughs) I know from reading the book that your introduction to Bill Landis was through the Sleazoid Express book that came out in 2002. What was it about that book that made such an impact on you? Yeah, I, I had always known that there were horror movies and that there was this idea of kind of subversive cinema. I was uh, born in Houston and then lived in St. Louis until I was 12. But then from the time that I was 12 until the time that I was about 19, I lived in this fairly rural place called Broken Arrow, Oklahoma. And I joke with people, whatever you imagined when I said that is probably accurate. Uh, You know, you literally had to drive down a two lane road through cow pastures to get to my high school. And this was such a rural area that there were all these smaller outlying towns that didn't have enough kids for there to be high schools of their own in those towns. So all of these outlying areas all sent their kids to the Broken Arrow High School. So, you know, we had like a graduating class of like 3000 kids. And so it was this very rural, semi-isolated community. And growing up there, I had no idea that something like 42nd Street could or ever did exist. And so when I read the Sleazewood Express book and found out what Times Square had been in the 70s and 80s and found out what a Grindhouse movie was and found out about this like kind of kingdom of the damned that had grown up around it and all of these various subcultures that existed on 42nd Street in the 70s and 80s, it just blew my mind. It was like opening up my eyes to this entirely new world that I never knew existed. And it just had this huge impact on me. Yeah, I mean, the book Sleazoid Express is so much or as much about the actual Times Square movie theaters as it is about the movies themselves. 
obviously nowadays we can watch all of those movies in much better conditions in our living rooms. Why do people like you and me have this nostalgia for an imagined past for those, for those specific spaces? Do you think? I think part of it was this, uh, this kind of adventurism aspect all of this was underground and subversive and forbidden and a little bit dangerous. And you had to know where to go to find it. And there was this sort of thrill of discovery in finding those places and finding those movies. Uh, I'm just old enough that I was able to uh, experience that kind of gray market area of the internet where I was trading actual physical videotapes of movies with uh, people that were, you know, second and third generation bootlegs or dubs. And and it was exciting to like discover some guy in Wisconsin who had this basement full of old 70s like British exploitation films or to you know make contact with some guy uh, I remember he was this uh, American expatriate living in Japan and was sending his sister these bootlegs he was making of J-horror films and his sister was like the middleman in this operation that he had of like Japanese exploitation cinema filtering into the United States and that's cool and it's like exciting and it like really makes you feel like you're in on something and like you're a member of this almost secret society that nobody else knows about or belongs to and you know it's great that we have access now to places like Arrow and Severin Vinegar Syndrome that these places are restoring these movies and preserving them and you know mass marketing them but at the same time you've also kind of lost that uh, excitement that used to come with discovering them. Were there any specific films or filmmakers that Bill Landis and Sleazoid Express really got you interested in? It's funny kind of indirectly because when I was writing the Bill book, uh, I spoke to a friend of his, Art Ettinger, who I quote extensively in the book, and I asked Art, you know, what kind of movies did Bill like aside from horror and exploitation, or was it all just horror and exploitation? And Art told me Bill was just a guy who loved movies, and I even found a quote later on of Bill saying, yeah, an, an Ingmar Bergman movie to me is no different from an exploitation film, they're both art. And I found out that one of Bill's favorite movies was Robert Altman's That Cold Day in the Park. And I had seen MASH back in high school, and it didn't really make that big of an impression on me. But after Art told me that, I went and watched that cold day in the park and was just absolutely blown away by it. I had never seen something quite like that before. And I love watching the movie. You have no idea where it's going. And after that, I went on this huge Robert Altman binge and just consumed all of the Robert Altman films I could get my hands on. And he became a new favorite filmmaker of mine. Huh, not the answer I was expecting from that question, <laughs> but I, I, I love that film too. When did you start to become interested in Landis as a person? Probably around the time that I read this Lizard Express book, this would have been... I want to say it, it had to be sometime between 2002, 2004. And I wish I could remember there was this huge ice storm that hit Oklahoma when I was in high school because I first discovered this Lizard book because... They canceled school for several days. And so being a teenager, my immediate thoughts is, oh, ice is accumulating on the roads outside. And they say they're canceling school because of hazardous driving conditions. So I need to drive to Hollywood Video and stock up on videotapes to watch for the next couple of days, which I did. And at the time, I was working my way through the cult section at Hollywood Video, which it was really this kind of catch-all 
and I was in multiple Hollywood videos and no two Hollywood video cult sections were the exact same. And it was really where the store manager tossed the stuff. They weren't quite sure where to put anywhere else. And like the cult section at my particular Hollywood video is where I saw Blue Velvets and Freaks and Elvira, Amazon Women on the Moon. And I was just working my way through the cult section in no particular order, whichever video box arts looked the coolest to me when I went in on a given visit is what I rented. And during this particular stock up, I got this movie called Heartbreak Motel. And the cover art for it is Shelley Winters crying while holding a dead, bloody Elvis impersonator in her arms. And the colors are really weird and lurid and kind of like this washed out grainy pastel. And I remember looking at that box art and thinking to myself, what the hell is this? And I went home and I watched it. And my immediate thought after watching it was, what the hell did I just watch? And so I went out online and looked it up. And one of the only sources I could find, you know, and this is still fairly early days of the internet, was the Sleazewood Express book. And so I got this Lisa Express book, you know, read up on Heartbreak Motel. It turned out that was the producer's cut of a much nastier movie called Poor Pretty Eddie. And just that a person like this existed. Uh, you know, the Sleazoid book has this brief little introduction by Bill giving a very small, very kind of elliptical autobiography of himself. And I was just blown away that somebody could write like this, that somebody could know stuff like this, like in his writing and in his life, I saw kind of an aspect of how I kind of saw myself as a video consumer and burgeoning film critic. And I just loved the way that he saw and wrote about films. And for some reason, I remember thinking at the time that the guy was dead. Or maybe I didn't think that it was a possibility in 2002 that you could make contact with people. Uh, I really didn't see as a teenager the internet becoming what it is now where I can, you know, hop on IMDb, grab the email address of some writer whose movie I enjoy and, you know, be corresponding with them via Twitter a week from now. You know, this was like 2002, 2004 or so. So it never occurred to me to look this guy up if I even thought he was alive at the time. And after I got married in 2010, I remember my, my wife was not really well-versed in grindhouse cinema, exploitation cinema. Uh, she liked horror films and she liked kind of culty stuff, but she also had never really heard of 42nd Street or grindhouse cinema. And I was kind of giving her this crash course on it. And she too became really fascinated in Bill Landis after I read her some stuff from this Leaves at Express book. And she asked me whatever happened to the guy. And I looked him up and I found out two years after the fact that he was dead. And at the time, it was, you know, very sad for me that somebody who had had this kind of influence on my life had passed away. And I, I didn't really think that much more about it until 2015, no, it would have been 2016. I was working on my second book, uh, which has not come out yet because of some kind of weird complicated legal stuff. My books I've come out with since I've written afterwards, but uh, it was a follow-up to my first book. And it was set in 1970s New York in this kind of Bill Landis era. And to keep myself in that headspace and to give myself inspiration, I started rereading this Lezoid book. And my wife and I were carpooling to work at the time because we worked just down the street from one another. And every day on the way to work, I would be reading out loud from this Lezoid book and putting myself into this headspace. And by the time I was done with it, and by the time I finished this fictional work, I thought to myself, you know, I've told this fictional story, two fictional stories now about this world that Bill lived in, but nobody's ever really told his story. And he lived this fascinating life. And there's so much I don't know about him. There's so much I bet nobody else knows about him. 
And now it's time that somebody needs to preserve his story. At the time, I was uh, working for uh, Fangoria Magazine as a staff writer, and they gave me all of the research resources to begin looking into his life. And it was originally going to be an article in Fangoria about Bill. And this is 2017, 2018. And uh, everybody I reached out to to talk about Bill, pretty much the response was, I don't want to speak ill of the dead, and all I have to say is ill, so we're just not going to talk about this. And that was kind of the unanimous verdict I got on everybody that I reached out to circa 2017, 2018. And uh, I I kind of started revisiting the idea of doing this during quarantine because I I didn't have anything else to do. And it was uh, actually Joel Reed's death that uh, shook everybody out of hiding. Uh, When he passed away, all of a sudden, everybody that I had wanted to talk to was suddenly very eager to talk. And kind of the new consensus was we don't want these stories to to pass away and pass into the night. And maybe even if we haven't got the best things to say about Bill, at least his story will be preserved. That was way more information than you were looking for. I'm sorry. For people who don't know, Joel Reed is the director of such films as Bloodsucking Freaks and Career Bed. And uh, a man who had a... uh, a long and complicated relationship with Bill Landis, as it seems most people who knew him did. It's interesting that people didn't want to speak ill of the dead because the people that you quote in the book, I mean, obviously there's a lot of unpleasant information about Bill Landis in there, but I don't think anyone comes across as really scornful, you know? Like, were people surprised? Were you surprised how much affection there ended up being? I was, yeah, because the initial stories I'd heard about Bill were these absolute horror stories. And uh, floating around out there online somewhere is an obituary that uh, Mike McPadden wrote for Bill at the time he died. And it is the most hilarious, most backhandedly complimentary things you have ever read. It's like, it ends with like, I I miss Bill Landis and I always will. I love what he gave to the world. But before that, he just tears the absolute fuck into Bill. And I mean, the, the, the stories that Mike tells in that obituary were of a, of a sort that you would hear from people. And it was, you know, Bill called me up and was like, I heard those things you said about me. I know the stories you have been spreading around town and I'm going to hack into your bank account and ruin your life. Or it would be, uh, you owe me money. I turned that article into you 16 hours ago. Why haven't I gotten my paycheck yet? I'm going to start sending you satanic postcards. And it was, you know, all stuff like this. And I think that's the double barrel hits of COVID in general, and then Joel Reed dying kind of softened people and, and kind of made them look back with, with a different perspective on Bill and maybe see him in a, in a broader picture and see him as a little bit more of a human and to take into account some of the life circumstances that had brought him to that place. And, uh, and I think it was a, a case of time and distance giving people perspective. And it was It was very nice, actually, because I was prepared to get a lot more negativity on Bill than I got. I did not go into this with rose-colored glasses, and it had been a goal of mine to portray him as a person and not in, you know, too hagiographic terms, not, uh, not to bury him, but to just really tell his story. And I was afraid that was going to be a little bit more difficult than it turned out being, which was nice. I think one of the things that's interesting about Landis and Sleazoid Express, the book, is there are these really vivid descriptions in the book of these 
plainly dangerous environments that he was going to. And so few people were writing about, I don't know, City of the Living Dead or Bloodthirsty Butchers or whatever else was coming out on 42nd Street in the in the 70s and 80s, frankly, because a lot of the people who would be equipped to write about movies were too afraid to go to those movie theaters or it was beneath them. And you think, what what sort of a what sort of a man would put himself in those environments? not just because they were looking for drugs or sex, but out of love of cinema. You know, there were very few people like that. One of the frustrations of thinking about Bill Landis is, you know, I had a similar relationship with that book. Uh, It meant a lot to me. And it was always very frustrating that there were these two incarnations of the zine, Sleazoid Express. There was one from the early 80s and then one from the 2000s that had a more scholarly retrospective tone. But neither of them are easily available now. You can't really find them online the way that you can find scans of old issues of Psychotronic, for instance. They're hard to find on eBay. Were you able to find some of those issues and why why is it so hard to find them? So uh, fortunately, I was able to get my hands on quite a few scans that one of the gentlemen that I interviewed for the the book, Ron Rochia of Mad Ron's Previews from Hell fame, actually has a sizable collection of the originals because he was friends with Bill and was also a subscriber. And he uh, he kept all of these old issues. And so he scanned a bunch of them for me and sent them to me. So I was able to read a fair amount of the original run of the zine. I've only ever been able to get my hands on one issue of the new iteration of Sleazoid, which for better and for worse was the Joel Reed issue that I quote extensively from in the book, which is dedicated entirely to telling these absolutely batshit insane stories about Joel Reed. And probably there's a sliver of truth in there somewhere, but a lot of it is, you know, this really sensational BS. They're, they're hard to come by because uh, Bill was really just like Xeroxing these things off and mailing them out. So, like it was not a super professional operation. Uh, like he even got fired from Merrill Lynch at one point in the 80s because he was running Sleazoid off on the uh, Xerox machine at the Merrill Lynch offices. So, you know, they, they weren't these like glossy, professionally run things. It's something that you or I could print off on our computers right now, you know, go in my bedroom, type something up in a Word document, hit print, you know, a sheet of paper comes out of my Epson and that's what the original run of Sleazoid was like. So I'm sure that a very sizable portion of those original issues of Sleazoid got wadded up and tossed in trash cans after people were done reading them or they just deteriorated with time and age. Uh, And then also, I'm fairly certain that Bill was only really running off as many as he needed to meet his subscription quota, you know, maybe a couple extras to provide to some newsstands or clubs around Times Square. But at at its height, the, uh, the zine only ever had a couple of hundred subscribers. And so there were probably less than a thousand of any given issue of Sleazoid floating around out there at any time. And that number has only diminished since. Well, I hope some of that material finds its way onto the internet eventually. I have read a couple of issues of the zine that he worked on with his wife, Michelle Clifford, in the 90s called Metasex, which is about pornography and the sex industry. And there's an article in one of those about the director, Phil Prince, who was this pornographer in the 80s who made The Taming of Rebecca and other very, very scuzzy movies And I've always loved that article. It's such a gripping, riveting article. Um, And then a couple of years ago, 
this website, the Rialto Report, actually found the real Phil Prince and interviewed him and did some real research into his life and, you know, found out that probably like 75% of what was in that Bill Landis article, (laughs) which, which formed the basis of the Phil Prince mythology, any knowledge that anyone had about Phil Prince came from that Bill Landis article. Like it was all bullshit. And yet, I don't know if you have this feeling like weirdly, it doesn't, it doesn't entirely matter. Like I still like that article. You know what I mean? I don't know what it was with Bill because even after, I mean, and back in the eighties, you can account for a lot of his inaccuracies with the fact that he was writing this stuff strung out of his mind on speedballs. I mean, by his own admission and his own writing, he says, you know, I would, you know, get home and like, you know, shoot up with speedballs and uh, snort a little Coke and then write up the new issue of Sleazoid. So, you know, that accounts for it back in the day, but then in the nineties, he's clean and he's still writing this stuff. And so I don't know if he thought it was funny and this was like this really weird, complex joke, which with what I know about Bill, I can see, or if he honestly believed all of this stuff, which I can also see. But even when he wasn't 100% accurate with facts, there was always this spirit, but not the letter sort of ambiance to it. It's like he got some elements of truth in his writing that shines through despite a lot of the factual inaccuracy. Yeah, I completely agree. And I'm not I'm not really sure I could argue it in court, but I know it to be true. <laughs> um, one of the stranger aspects of his life story is that during the time of the first run of Sleazoid Express, he was also this very prolific and visible porn star in New York under the name Bobby Spector. Uh, how much of his porn work did you watch? And did you uh, want to or try to talk to anyone who knew him in that world? Uh, yeah, I actually watched a couple of them just for research purposes. Uh, 80s porn is not a very pretty thing. And, uh, you know, you you can tell a lot of these people are very visibly on drugs while they're filming it, which lends it this very unsexy atmosphere. It's it's a little bit disturbing to see some of the stuff and be able to tell these people are strung out of their minds. there's one film of Bill's, though, that's, that does have this uh, this weird B-movie quality to it. It's called uh, Parted Lips, and it's, like, about these, like, Russian aristocrats in exile in Manhattan, and it's, like, filmed entirely in what looks to be, like, somebody's Manhattan loft, and, like, all the actors are doing Rus- these really shitty Russian accents except for Bill, who's just very patently talking with his real voice with that Staten Island accent of his. And so you've got, we one day we will re-seize the crown, but until then I'm going to host an orgy here. And then you've got, right away, your highness, I will go ahead and start rounding people up, you know, stuff like that. It's, it's hilarious. And, you know, nobody in that seems stoned. They all kind of seem in on the joke. So that was funny. Um, unfortunately, a lot of the people that Bill was involved with in those days have since passed on. Uh, a lot of them were involved in the drug scene. A lot of them were also involved in sex work on the side, having unprotected sex. A lot of them succumbed either to drugs or to uh, HIV and the uh, AIDS epidemic of the 80s. 
Uh, since the book came out, though, I did actually have a gentleman. I don't want to say any names right now until I've actually spoken to him and got him on record. But I did have a porn associate of Bill's reach out to me who read the book and who wants to uh, provide material to a potential revised and expanded edition. And then I also found the contact information for another gentleman that Bill was involved with in his porn days, who a couple of people told me was dead during the course of my research and who a couple of pieces of evidence indicated was dead, but who now turns out to be very much alive. And so I do intend to reach out to him as well. Well, you're going to get another 10 or $12 out of me for that. Uh, <laughs> one, of, one of the biggest challenges to telling this story is that his wife and collaborator, Michelle Clifford, has sort of disappeared from public view. Now, her name comes up a lot in this other great book about zine culture that I know you're familiar with called Xerox Ferox. If I recall correctly, it's been a little while since I've read it, but most people in that book speak of her quite negatively. You and your book are very sympathetic towards her. I, I guess my question is, uh, how do you square that difference in perspective and what sort of conversations with his collaborators and friends did you have about her? Uh, I was surprised a lot of his friends and collaborators did speak very positively of her. And I think that a lot of the negativity surrounding the discourse around Michelle comes from a couple of places. One is that, like Bill, she did have a more negative side to her person, does have a more negative side to her personality. I don't want to speak about her in the past tense. Uh, you know, she she could be an abrasive individual. At the same time, though, something that kind of emerged for me in a lot of the interviews I did was that there is, I think, a kind of strain of misogyny in a lot of the Michelle Clifford hates. A lot of the people that I talked to would say things like, oh, she wanted to ride Bill's coattails and Bill was writing work for her. She wasn't really talented at all. She was a hack and Bill just wrote stuff for her and then she put her name on it. And Bill came up with Metasex and Bill wrote the new Sleezoid by himself. And, you know, no, that's that's not the case. Michelle and Bill were collaborators and you can really see an evolution and development in his writing style and in his journalistic techniques that begins around the time that he and Michelle got together and began collaborating. And she really did help him to focus and to grow as a writer. And I think that there is this kind of boys club mentality around that old zine culture with certain people who, you know, don't want to acknowledge the contributions that Michelle made and don't want to acknowledge that, uh, you know, she really did bring something to the table. And I mean, I think part of that is misogyny. I think part of that is, you know, that abrasive personality and not wanting to give her credit. But uh, a much more sympathetic picture of her emerged from my conversations with his friends. And it was really surprising, you know, some of the people that I talked to talking about having a friendship with her as well, you know, calling up the house and Bill wasn't home. And so they would sit on the phone and chit chat about exploitation with Michelle and had perfectly lovely relationships with her. I'm glad your book also shines a light on the fact that, I mean, no matter what else you think of her, she was dealing with a husband who was deep in the throes of drug addiction. So if, if you're talking about riding someone's coattails, it's not, it's not the easiest coattails to ride exactly. I know that she was on Twitter for a while. In fact, I think I even interacted with her once or twice years ago, but she hasn't been active in a few years. Have you heard anything from her or, the, or 
anyone from the Landis family since publishing? No, I mean, uh, and we really made an effort to get in touch with either her or their daughter, Victoria. Uh, back when I was still working at Fangoria, uh, Fangoria actually put together a care package for Michelle, a couple of issues with the magazine, a couple of books and t-shirts, stickers, bumper stickers, yada, yada. And then I also wrote this uh, handwritten letter that was included in there, you know, telling Michelle why I was writing this book, how much her and Bill's work meant to me, and that I wanted to write this very accurate and a very, you know, sympathetic, true story about his life and saying that I know that a lot of the material out there about Bill is very defamatory and kind of uh, tongue-in-cheek disparaging. And I really want this to be the true Bill Landis story. And Fangoria had also included in that care package an offer to pay her to write an introduction to the book or to the uh, article when it was still going to be in the magazine. And somebody signed for it at the last known address on file for Michelle uh, the return slip didn't have, you know, who signed for it, just package was signed for, and nobody ever responded. And I mean, the fact that she, you know, had apparently turned down an offer of money really spoke a lot. We made a couple more efforts to get in touch with her since, but nobody ever responded. Uh, the only address I could find on file for Victoria was the same as an address for Michelle. So I don't know if, you know, they were living together or if that was left over from when Victoria was still a minor, you know, she'd be in her early 20s now, but they've just both completely vanished. And I've heard different stories about what their respective living situations might be that I don't want to repeat because they're just hearsay. I mean, they're not necessarily bad, but it's just I don't want to, you know, go on record saying what I've heard. But uh, no, they, for all intents and purposes, have vanished and they've done it in such a way that it's apparent they don't want to be found. For the last section of the book, you draw a lot on this unpublished piece of autobiographical writing that he did shortly before his death. It really sounds amazing from what you quote about it. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so it's called Last Exit in Manhattan, and he wrote it during a period that he and Michelle were separated. And this was going to be this kind of like, not quite an issue of Sleazoid and not quite a self-published book. It was really its own unique creation. Uh, you know, if this thing, if you were to publish it, I put it into a Word document, I think it's about 75 pages, like not quite 100 pages. And it is very patently just a Romana Clef for a year in, in Bill's life. And he's calling himself Bobby Spector. He's resurrecting his old, you know, non-deporum. And it is this autobiographical novella about a year in the life of Bobby Spector living in the Heights in New York of Lin-Manuel Miranda in the Heights fame. And it's, it's really astounding because he opens up in this in a way emotionally and psychologically that he never opened up in a lot of his writing before. The closest he came was the Village Voice article he wrote in the early 90s, Body for Rent. Uh, where he talks about, you know, being abused as a child and then getting into the porn scene. But other than Body for Rent, uh, Last Exit in Manhattan contains the most insightful and most raw insights about himself and his life and his world that Bill ever had. And it's, it's just really astounding to read him, read about these experiences that he had. And uh, the reason it never got published is that when he finished it, Michelle had left him with their daughter and had moved to Chicago and had kind of made a break from him. And it was looking for a while like they were going to get divorced. And because the contents of this are so honest and raw, Bill's friends told him basically, if you publish this and you end up in a divorce court, 
all Michelle has to do is show this to a judge and she's going to get, you know, sole custody of your daughter because he is very open and it's about, you know, relapsing into drug abuse and about, you know, contemplating hooking up with gang members and about blacking out on a sidewalk at two in the morning and ending up in a mental institution in New York. And, you know, probably wisely, he did not publish that when it looked like there might be a custody battle involved. But uh, it would be great for it to see the broad light of day one day, because it's not just a phenomenal piece of writing, but uh, it's it tells you so much about Bill as a person and gives such a glimpse into the way he was thinking during these last couple of years of his life. What do you think it would take for that piece of writing to be published? Michelle's got to resurface and she's got to sign off on all of this. Uh, they were still legally married at the time he died. And so she is now the executor of his estates and she legally controls all of the old Sleazoid writing. She controls the writing that she did with him and any writing of bills like this that wasn't published, she has the, the rights to now. And so Michelle would have to come forward, would have to negotiate a deal with some publisher and uh, give them the rights to republish this work. And I, I really hope that happens. I know that there are a couple of people out there who have complete collections of the original run of Sleazoid. One of the reasons that Jimmy McDonough wasn't more forthcoming with me is because he's already agreed to give some exclusive interviews to who I'm going to call a mystery gentleman. I know who it is, but I don't want to just, you know, splash his name all over the internet. But it is somebody of note has the complete collection of the original Sleazoids and wants to publish a coffee table book. And Jimmy has agreed to give him some exclusive interviews, but that gentleman has not been able to do it because they've not been able to get Michelle to sign off on it. And I don't know what the latest on that is. I think that she may have fallen out of contact with this person as well. But uh, until she comes forward and says yes, or sadly, until she maybe passes away and then Victoria Landis comes forward and says yes, this stuff is just completely tied up in legal limbo. I, I think I probably know who it is, but I'm not going to guess on it. <laughs> um, anyway, my last question would just be, why should people care about Bill Landis? If you are a fan of exploitation cinema or grindhouse movies or even underground horror, and you are under 40 years old, there is a very good chance that Bill Landis's writing and criticism has helped to shape the way that you watch, think about, and if you're a writer yourself, write about exploitation cinema, even if you don't realize it. Uh, at the time that Bill Landis came on the scene, nobody was seriously critiquing exploitation or even horror cinema. Uh, it's really telling the year that the first issue of Sleazoid ran, Gene Siskel doxed Betsy Palmer for being in the first Friday the 13th movie. That's right. He uh, put her address on TV and said, mm -hmm. you should write to her with your displeasure. Exactly. And so that was the way that people thought about these kinds of movies at the time. And then onto this scene comes Bill Landis. And Fangoria had come out, the first issue of Fangoria had come out the year before the first issue of Sleazoid. And uh, Fangoria switched formats to become exclusively a horror magazine at around the same time that the first issue of Sleazoid ran, but they weren't critiquing horror movies. They were kind of this progenitor of the internet where it was behind the scenes info and coming soon stuff and SFX tutorials, but they weren't really seriously analyzing these films or providing any kind of deeper academic criticism of them. And Bill was. Bill was one of the first people to come onto the scene and say exploitation cinema has merits, horror movies have merits, and he wrote about them. And that helped in turn to shape another generation of writers who shaped another generation of writers who has given us the current generation of horror and exploitation critics who are writing now. And 
even if we only know the influences of the previous generation, that previous generation were themselves influenced by Bill. And the other reason the bill is important is that in addition to being a film critic, he was also something of an amateur anthropologist and ethnographer. He wasn't just writing about the films that played on Times Square and the films that were playing on 42nd Street. He was writing about the people that went to see them. And because these were verboten underground films, they kind of drew different groups of people that were brushed aside by society at the time. There was a big trans community that grew up around 42nd Street. There were, you know, Latinx communities. There were communities of disenfranchised colored people that gravitated towards these films and formed these families and subcultures that gravitated around 42nd Street and exploitation movies. And Bill was writing about them and documenting their lives and lifestyles. He wrote this really fantastic article for the Village Voice called Using and Losing, and it's all about LGBT sex workers working on the deuce and Times Square. And, you know, sadly, as the article goes on, a lot of them die over the course of the time that Bill is writing this article. But, you know, those lives and those legacies were being preserved by Bill when society at large was saying that these people had no merits and should just, you know, basically go off and die. And Bill saw the value in them as human beings and their lives and helped to preserve that. And so there's this double-barreled importance to Bill's writing, not only as a film critic, but also as a, uh, a preserver of this lost time and culture. Thanks so much for taking the time, Preston. And uh, yeah, I, I hope Michelle Clifford resurfaces, please. Thank you. It was a blast. 